you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 27. We'll be in verses 13 through 44 this morning. As I mentioned the last couple of weeks, if you, if you don't have a Bible in your possession, if you don't own a Bible, please go on our church's website, go to the leadership page, find one of our staff and elder team email addresses, shoot us an email saying, I don't own a Bible, I don't have a Bible in my possession, and we will get a Bible two-day ship to you so that not only you can use it when we come together in moments like these on Sunday mornings, but every other day of the week. Let me go ahead and pray for us and we'll jump into the scriptures this morning. God, I just wanna acknowledge yet again that you are sovereign in power. You are infinite in wisdom. You're so very good, omnibenevolent. God, I pray that we would not forget these things in the midst of all that is unfolding around us. My prayer this morning is incredibly simple. It's that we would be reminded perhaps for the hundred thousandth time that we are yours and that you are with us in the midst of any storm that we may go through, whether the waves are calm or whether they are intensified, you have gone nowhere. You have not abandoned us. You are with us, present in the storm and strong to carry us through it. God, would you not only Help our minds to grab hold of that truth, but help our hearts to cling to it this morning. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen. Some of you may recall our journey through the book of Acts, a journey that took place for us as a church in the not-so-distant past, which presents the question right out of the gate, why come back to a passage like this so soon after having preached it? And the answer is this, among other reasons. It's one thing to consider a story of peril on the high seas when the waves of life are fairly calm. It's an altogether different thing to consider that very same story when the waves of life get choppy and rough. And so you may hear some illustrations and quotes that sound familiar this morning, particularly if you were around for our journey through the book of Acts. But I, I just invite you this morning to allow God's word to wash over you in a new way, in light of the storm that currently surrounds us, to hear God whispering to you in the midst of those wind, uh, waves and, and, and the wind, you belong to me and I am with you, and that those words would create a ballast for your soul. As we pick up the story midway through Acts chapter 27, the Apostle Paul has been imprisoned in the city of Caesarea for roughly two years, having been accused by the Jewish leaders of threatening peace and desecrating the Jerusalem temple. Having recently made an appeal to present his case to the Roman emperor, he and a few of his friends find themselves aboard a large open ocean vessel under the care of a centurion by the name of Julius, along with a few other prisoners. During a first century Mediterranean version, mind you, of hurricane season, the kind of conditions in which most ships wouldn't dare embark. Having weathered a few seafaring storms of his own, Paul advises the captain and the crew of the ship to stay put, but we're told that both the captain and the ship's owner are persuaded otherwise, and they set sail for a harbor a little more suitable for a large grain ship. By the time we reach verse 12, there's no question as to where this story's going. It's there that we're told that they put out to sea 
on the chance, Luke says, that somehow they could reach Phoenix. My guess is that none of us would be compelled to jump on board a boat that uses words like somehow and chance with respect to the hope of finding our way back to shore. It's not looking good for the Apostle Paul and his friends. Picking up the story in verse 13, Luke says, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. That word translated tempestuous comes from the Greek word uh, tufanikos. It's where we get the word typhoon. Paul and his friends are in the midst of a violent storm, to say the least, one that drives the ship away from the coastline and out into the open sea. Verse 15, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulties to secure the ship's boat. And after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus were driven along. The Sirtis was a sandbar off the North African coast that was known to be a graveyard for ships, kind of like the Bermuda Triangle. Fearing for their very own lives, the crew does everything they can to keep the ship from running aground, hoisting up the smaller boat used to transport people from ship to land, tying ropes around the hull, lowering the gear in order to elevate the ship in the deadly shallows. Verse 18 tells us, since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. That in the case of Paul's experience on the high seas in Acts chapter 27, the storm actually gets worse before it gets better. It's such a violent storm that we're told that both the sun and stars are hidden behind the darkened clouds for days. The only hope for navigation vanished. We're meant to see and sense the absolute hopelessness of the situation. A ship lost in the open ocean without cargo, without tackle, without sun, without stars, without hope. Luke says, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Verse 21 continues, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Whereas Paul spoke on the basis of his experience at sea before. He now speaks on the basis of a revelation from God. And it's good news for those on board the ship. I mean, Paul already knew that he personally would make it to Rome because Jesus told him that he would make it to Rome back in Acts chapter 23. The new revelation here is that everyone else on board the ship will survive too. Luke goes on to write in verse 27, when the 14th night had come, 
As we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Verse 30, and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and they let it go. The sailors here are examples of unbelief having been given a promise by God of survival, yet choosing not to believe God's word. We're meant to see something of ourselves in those who sought to abandon ship. We all struggle with the sin underneath every other sin, the sin of unbelief, having been given not just one promise, but an abundance of promises from God in his word, yet struggling at times to believe those promises in the midst of the storm. So that one of the questions I would ask us this morning is this, what are those promises of God that your heart needs to wrap around most in the midst of all the uncertainty that surrounds us? Luke goes on to say in verse 33, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Verse 37, we were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Not only do we get the imagery of the Lord's Supper here, the breaking of the bread, but we get a reminder, an echo of the Old Testament, the daily manna for the Old Testament wilderness wandering Israelites, commanded not to hoard the manna as an act of trust that God would provide the next day. The crew of the the ship tosses the remainder of the wheat overboard, we're told, after having eaten in an effort to strengthen their bodies for what was to come a declaration of trust that Paul's God would in fact make good on his promise that they would eat again. Another question that I would present to us this morning is this, how is God calling you to trust him today, to enjoy today's wheat with a heart of thanksgiving and to trust him with the details of tomorrow, knowing that tomorrow's grace will be there when we wake up and it is in fact today again. Verse 39 The story continues, now when it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned, if possible, to run the ship ashore. So they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea, at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders. Then hoisting the foresail to the wind, they made for the beach. But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground, and the bow stuck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. They spot a bay with a beach, what's today referred to as St. Paul's Bay. And they attempt to run the ship ashore by casting off the anchors, freeing the rudders, turning the ship toward the island. But we're told that the ship runs aground before they make it to shore and the surf manages to tear the stern apart. Not out of the woods yet. Verse 42, 
And the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. Another near-death experience for the Apostle Paul, one of many, as the soldiers planned to execute him along with the other prisoners, uh, that plan prevented by the centurion Julius, the invisible hand of God's providence in not only preserving Paul's life, but ultimately in fulfilling his promises. God said that Paul would make it to Rome, and he does according to the final chapter of the book of Acts. God said that Paul would appear before Caesar, and he does according to the final chapter of the book of Acts. God said that all on board the ship would be brought safely to land, and all were indeed brought safely to land. It's an absolutely crazy story that Acts chapter 27 tells, a story that declares what really the entirety of Scripture declares, namely that God is a promise keeper. His word always proves true. His invisible hand of providence cannot and will not be thwarted. But why such peril on the high seas, you might ask? I mean, what a crazy experience it must have been for the Apostle Paul and his friends, along with everyone else aboard that ship. Why? It's an incredibly appropriate question because it helps us to better understand the storms that you and I face ourselves. David Gooding Bible teacher and professor emeritus at Queens University, Belfast, says this about Acts chapter 27. He says, From the moment they boarded the doomed ship to the cold, wild morning it broke up on the shore of Malta, there was no miracle. No divine power calmed the sea, as some years previously Galilee's tempest had subsided in recognition of her master's voice. He's talking about Jesus there. No angelic powers, he says, conveyed the ship unscathed into port. All the passengers and crew were saved, but only after two weeks and more of agonized suffering and a final inglorious hair-raising scramble from the wreck through the surf to the shore. He goes on to say, if Paul was God's own appointed apostle and ambassador sent to represent the gospel of God's own son to the highest authority on earth, And if God is the God who created and controls nature, who rules over the surging sea, and when its waves mount up, stills them, then why did God, uh, not God's kingly rule, order the Mediterranean to give his ambassador a smoother passage instead of torturing him for two weeks and then throwing him up like a half-drowned rat on the beach? It's a great question. It's an incredibly honest question. Why? I'm sure many of us have asked that very same question over the past few weeks in the midst of a pandemic that's taken the entire world by storm. I said it a couple weeks ago, and it bears repeating. One thing that we can say for sure is this, that for those of us who belong to Jesus, not one single storm that we face in life is or ever will be the Father's wrath toward us. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus experienced the greatest storm the world has ever known, the only storm that could truly destroy us. Jesus was thrown into the raging sea of God's wrath, taking the punishment and paying the debt that we as guilty sinners know deep down that we owe so that we might know the greatest rescue from the greatest destruction. 
If you're not a Christian, my, my prayer for you this morning is simple. It's that you would see yourself like those on the ship with the Apostle Paul under the starless, darkened sky of God's wrath, a sinner in the heart of a storm that you can't possibly steer yourself out of by rowing hard enough through morality, through good works, that like those aboard the ship, that you would come to the end of yourself, that you would see that your only hope for rescue is found in Jesus Christ, the one who took the very storm upon himself at Mount Calvary so that we might never have to know it, that you would turn to him in faith, that you would know true peace and joy this morning. And if you are a Christian, I'll say it for the thousandth time, the storm isn't because God has forgotten you. The storm isn't because God doesn't love you. I said this a couple of weeks ago. If you lost everything in your 401k tomorrow and then contracted a sickness that led to your death, it would not be because God hates you. It would not be because you're cursed, Christian. There is no wrath for God's children. The wrath of God was absorbed by Jesus Christ in your place. God delights over you because of Christ. You're his beloved child because of Christ. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, you have been established among God's new covenant people. Jesus has made you his own. You are the apple of God's eye. Jesus calls you his friend. So why the darkened storms of life? Why such peril on the high seas? I mean, we talked about this a little bit a couple weeks ago when we looked at the sovereignty of God in the midst of uncertainty. We could chalk it up to the reality of what it means to live in a fallen world on the one hand, a world with hurricanes and sickness and death. We could chalk it up to God flexing his proverbial muscle, showing himself mighty in the midst of our most hopeless moments. We could talk about how God shatters our pride through storms forging a Christ-like humility in us and dependence upon him. We could talk about how God increases our compassion through storms so that we can minister to others facing similar storms in life. And all those things are most certainly true. But I wanna focus just briefly this morning on something that seems to be a broader theme throughout the book of Acts. Namely, God establishing an anchor in the hearts of his people a ballast for the soul to use that seafaring imagery, creating in us a steadiness like the apostle Paul so that we can increasingly declare in the, in the midst of the worst of storms that those are nothing more than light momentary afflictions to use that second Corinthians language, preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison to come. Each of our daughters has a stuffed bunny rabbit. Some of you know this, some of you have seen these family members of ours. They've had these bunnies since they were born, members of the family for years now, part of our bedtime routine every night, part of every family road trip, part of every sorrowful moment or need for comfort. Those stuffed animals that you see up on the screen behind me have been absolutely run ragged, including hundreds if not thousands of cycles through the washer and dryer. And the truth of the matter is this. Those stuffed bunnies are more real for the wear and tear than they ever would have been had they remained on a shelf at arm's length from the things that make stuffed animals raggedy. 
I shared this when we walked through this passage in our series through the book of Acts. Marjorie Williams Bianco captures this thought beautifully in her famous book, The Velveteen Rabbit. This story of a stuffed animal's desire to become real through the love of his owner. She writes, Real isn't how you are made, said the skin horse. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt, asked the rabbit? Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. When you're real, you don't mind being hurt. Does it happen all at once, like being wound up, he asks, or bit by bit? She goes on to write, it doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become, you become. It takes a long time. That's why it doesn't happen often to people who break easily or have sharp edges or who have to be carefully kept. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off and your eyes drop out and you get loose in the joints and very shabby. But these things don't matter at all because once you're real, you can't be ugly except to people who don't understand. In other words, The bunny with the hair loved off is the better bunny. There's something real about a child of God who suffered through a storm or two. Raggedy, yes, but with an honesty and a humility and a confidence and a calm that only the storm could bring about in us. Knowing that God is doing something beyond our imagination for his glory and our ultimate good and joy. Tim Keller says, to be loved but not known is comforting, but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense, humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. Perhaps the most significant thing that Paul says in Acts chapter 27, buried deep within the story of Paul's peril at sea, verse 23, this God I proclaim is one to whom I belong and whom I worship. I belong to him. He's with me in the midst of the storm and I worship him. He's mighty to carry me through the storm. How do we face the storms of life, including global pandemics? It's by soaking in the truth on the one hand that we belong to God, a God who's present with his people in every storm, and by soaking in the truth that his power is sufficient to carry his people through every storm. I've shared this before. One of my favorite scenes in one of my favorite books, C.S. Lewis's Prince Caspian. And as a side note, if you haven't, done so already, can I just encourage you to read a little bit of fiction in the downtime that we have right now for your soul? Read some nonfiction too, but please read a little bit of fiction along with it. C.S. Lewis never wrote fiction books in order to help us escape this world, but rather to help us better understand the very world in which we actually live. Lewis says in Prince Caspian, one of the many encounters between Aslan, the Christ figure, the lion, and Lucy, the representation of childlike faith and wonder. He writes, A circle of grass, smooth as a lawn, met her eyes, Lucy's eyes, with dark trees dancing all round it. 
And then, oh joy, for he was there, the huge lion shining white in the moonlight with his huge black shadow underneath him. But for the movement of his tail, he might have been a stone lion. But Lucy never thought of that. She never stopped to think whether he was a friendly lion or not. She rushed to him. She felt her heart would burst if she lost a moment. And the next thing she knew was that she was kissing him and putting her arms as far around his neck as she could and burying her face in the beautiful, rich silkiness of his mane. Aslan, Aslan, dear Aslan, sobbed Lucy. At last, Lucy buried her head in his mane to hide from his face, but there must have been magic in his mane. She could feel lion strength going into her. Quite suddenly, she sat up. I'm sorry, Aslan, she said. I'm ready now. Now you are a lioness, said Aslan, and now all Narnia will be renewed. Christianity declares that we have the the very presence of the lion himself in the midst of every single storm that we face. One who gives his people lion strength in the midst of a ship in pieces. One who will work the, the most raging wave of all for our good, including the wave of a global pandemic. Coming back to Acts chapter 27, Paul knew that in the midst of the storm, he was being truly loved. John Newton once wrote, be gone unbelief, my Savior is near, and for my relief will surely appear. By prayer let me wrestle, and he will perform. With Christ in the vessel, I smile at the storm. May that ballast for the soul steady us, whether the waves come to a calm in the days and weeks to come, or become more intensified before they're subdued. God is on the move in and through all of this. The gospel is spreading right this very moment around the world through the proclamation of God's word and the good news of Jesus Christ through digital platforms galore. By way of a ship in pieces, people are meeting Jesus. Let's not waste this storm, Christian. Lean into the presence of the lion in the midst of the crashing waves, even if they were to get worse before they get better. Let's declare his greatness and love to a world desperate for a ballast in the midst of this storm. In a moment, we're gonna continue to worship together in a couple of ways. We're gonna do so through singing, or perhaps even if you don't sing, just through the, the washing of those words of truth over you through song. We're not going to, as I mentioned last week, receive or partake of communion during this time of being scattered. We're going to hold off on that and allow that to be a sweet moment when we reconvene as the people of God in this place collectively. But that doesn't mean that we can't remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we can't celebrate who Jesus is and what he's done for us, that we can't bask in the wonder of the cross and empty tomb, that we can't remember the, the raging storm that Jesus entered into on our behalf as he took the storm of God's wrath upon himself so that we would never have to, we can most certainly remember those things. And I invite you to do that between now and the end of this service. I invite you to pause for just a moment as you would before you were to come and take of the bread and the cup and remember and celebrate the good news of the gospel, the finished work of, of Jesus Christ.